Our scripture reading today is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is found on page 982 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that pew Bible home as a gift from us. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning to each one of you. We're so glad that you are here with us today, whether uh, that's here in the room in person or joining us online. And if you are joining us online, we'd love to know that you are here with us. And so you can text that number that's on your screen. Just let us know that you're here and how we can be praying for you. We're so glad that you have joined us in that way this morning. So as uh, on this weekend, this Memorial Day weekend, um, we're really glad that you have gathered uh, together here in this place. And as we continue in worship together, let me pray uh, for us, and then we will take a look more closely at this passage uh, that Rachel's read for us. So Father in heaven, thank you that you are the God of all creation who has spoken this into being, and that even our very uh, breath depends upon you. So I I pray that now as we look into this text, your spirit would be active, bringing this this word of God that is living and active to bear on each of our hearts and lives and on the life of our community together. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to start this morning and say, you know, friends, I don't know if we're doing so hot on the disagreement front lately in in our culture right now. We're doing so hot on the disagreement front, right? It seems like there are strident disagreements uh, everywhere we look, both uh, certainly outside the church, but even inside uh, the church as well. And, And I'm not just talking about kind of macro disagreements in the church that, you know, have separated different denominations and groups, uh, different kind of streams of Christianity for hundreds of years, but just even within denominations or, or groups of churches that have been together and been unified, it seems like in the last couple of years, a lot of division and disagreement has arisen, not only even in those big groups, but even in, in particular in local congregations as well. Uh, recently, there was an article about a big denomination in the U.S., very influential, one of the largest, uh, lots of congregations all over the country. And there's just a lot of turmoil surrounding that denomination in this season at this time. And one of the commentators in this article just noted, how will they convince the world of Jesus' love when they can't stand one another? How will they convince the world of Jesus' love when they can't stand one another? And you know, that's actually Paul's concern as well in this letter. At this point in the book of Philippians, he's concerned about the disagreements that are happening in this moment. And how will people know that there is the love of Jesus in this particular church community in Philippi if there is these disagreements festering? And again, Paul writes, actually, it's really common for Paul to address uh, these kinds of conflicts and 
kind of issues in churches all throughout his letters. So this is not unique to the letter of the Philippians. In fact, the conflict that he's addressing here doesn't seem to be as extreme as many of the conflicts that he deals with in other places, but he's still concerned about it because, think about it, at this point, Paul's writing this letter, the church movement as a whole is only a few decades old. There isn't like another church in Philippi. Like if this one doesn't make it, there's another church there. And so he's concerned that this church be unified, that they work through these disagreements so that the gospel, the good news about Jesus's life, death, resurrection continues to thrive in this city. And again, here's the thing. Disagreements are going to happen, but we can disagree better than we do. And that's why this letter, this part of the letter, chapter four, is not, it's not the theological high point of the book of Philippians. I really think that's back in Philippians chapter two, and this great this kind of picture of Jesus as this highly exalted one who became low and took on the form of a servant and all of that. I think that's the theological high point in the book. But this little section right here, this is the pastoral high point of the letter. This is the pastoral heart of the letter. And again, disagreements happen. Many times they happen over things that, that aren't even right or wrong. They're just preference issues, right? Like who has the, who has the better burnt ends? Is it, is it Q39? Is it Jackstack? Oklahoma Joe's? Joe's Kansas City? I guess is the name now, right? You know, right, those are, those are, maybe those are right and wrong issues for you. So maybe I shouldn't go there this morning. But sometimes they're just preference issues, right? But what we discover in this message is not that we are not gonna never disagree, but that we can disagree better. We can disagree better than the world. And, and we need to disagree better. And what we discover in these verses is that the gospel is powerful enough to sustain joy even in the midst of disagreement. If you only write down one thing or you only take away one thing from the message this morning, I hope it's that, that the gospel is powerful enough, strong enough to sustain joy even in the midst of disagreement. It's key to everything in this passage this morning. And what we're going to uncover here in this text, these really these, just these three short verses we heard read, are three observations that are going to allow us to sustain joy even as we disagree as Christians, even as we disagree inside the context of the church. And the first one we uncover here we find in verse 2. And it, it might seem so obvious that we don't need to say it, but it almost feels like we're at this kind of this is a football moment with disagreement in church and culture right now. we got to get down to that kind of basic fundamental level. So, so what is this first observation? Well, it's that our gospel brings together people who disagree. That the gospel brings together people who disagree. And that is so easy to skip, to overlook. It's so basic, but it's incredibly beautiful. And just look again here at verse 2. He says, I entreat Yoda. Now, I knew I was going to say this. I knew it. I did, made it through all through first service and did this. This woman's name is Yodia. And I was like, at some point, I'm going to say Yoda, the Star Wars character. Uh, and I did all through first service. I did just fine. But Yodia and Syntyche, right? Not, not baby Yoda, but Yodia and Syntyche, but these, these two women, they're leaders in the church, most likely, because they're, they're mentioned by name here. He urges them to agree in the Lord, which means that they're having some kind of disagreement. The gospel brings together people who disagree. Again, that's a point that's kind of so obvious, so basic that we maybe shouldn't even need to have it here in a sermon. But I think we're so constantly surprised and dismayed by disagreement in the church that, that we just need to be reminded the gospel brings together people who disagree. In fact, 
it was a big part of why the early church grew. But first, before we get to that, I want to just clear up, what does this word entreat mean? Because I don't know about you, but I don't use the word entreat a lot in my normal everyday speech. I don't entreat people to do things. I don't say, you know, Taylor, I entreat you to fix the slides this morning. Uh, it's just not how we talk. What does the word entreat mean? It just simply means to ask, to urge, to encourage um, someone to do something. So other translations will bring that word across as I urge you or I plead with you to agree in the Lord. And again, Paul is talking to these women that are likely kind of key leaders in this local church community who are having some kind of a disagreement. And again, the fact that the gospel brings people together was what part of what helped the local church to grow. In fact, Larry Hurtado is a New Testament scholar. He actually recently passed away, but he points this out in his, what I think is an amazingly titled book called The Destroyer of the Gods, which when I read The Destroyer of the Gods, like, that doesn't, that's like a death metal album. That's not a, that's not a, like a nerdy church history book, but uh, it's amazing. You guys are supposed to laugh at that. Death, death metal band, destroyer of the gods. Doesn't that sound like that's just a death metal band name waiting to happen, destroyer of the gods. Um, but Larry Tata wrote this great book on why did the early church thrive and grow in the early, early, early days of Christianity. And he lists out a number of factors, but one of them in particular was the fact that it brought together different groups of people, different classes of people, different ethnicities into one body, one local church community together. Now, we actually know that this happened in Philippi because we get in the book of Acts, which is uh, the Acts tells kind of the history of the early church. We actually get a little brief picture of the founding of the church in Philippi. And so Paul and Silas, they're traveling. They arrive in the city of Philippi. And the first people that they encounter and start to talk to about Jesus is a woman named Lydia. And we know uh, that Lydia is a seller of purple, of purple cloth. Um, so basically, he meets and talks with this woman who she's an ex- a, basically like a, a business executive in the fashion industry, someone who is importing cloth and textiles and bringing this apart. And, you know, Lydia and her whole family, so her whole household, so like her whole family, her whole staff, they all become Christians. So you got this woman who's this business executive, this leader in the kind of textile fashion industry. She's in Thyatira. She's living in Philippi. She's importing, exporting this cloth high-end fabric. This is the first person who comes to faith in Philippi. And then we read along in Acts chapter 16 a little more, and you see Paul, he encounters this, this young girl who has some kind of uh, an evil spirit who's sort of oppressing her. And she's actually been trafficked as a child because of this, because people are using this ability that she has because of this spirit to predict. She's like a, they use her as a fortune teller. So she's, she's being sold to people to tell and predict the future. And, and Paul eventually delivers her from this, this spirit, and, and, and she's now a part of the family of faith. And that, that causes, I'm fast-forwarding here, that causes a riot. Paul and Silas, they get thrown into prison. They miraculously are, are released from prison. And actually, the, the jailer who's running the prison, he and his whole family, his whole household, they become Christians. So now, this is just a short period of time, it's, it's Sunday. Now you've got a, a corrections officer, You've got a, a trafficked child, and you have a business executive, and they all show up in church together, and they wouldn't have ever hung out together before. It's incredibly beautiful, but it's also really, really difficult. And it's room that is, is just, there's lots of ripe soil there for disagreement to happen. Three really different groups of people. And the same is still true today. Right? The church is really, really beautiful, and it's also really hard, and there's lots of room for disagreement because our gospel brings together people who disagree. 
It brings together people who disagree. Now, we don't know the exact nature of the disagreement between Yodia and Syntyche. We don't. Paul doesn't really name it, which tells us that it's not something super theologically significant, because back in chapter two and three, he's really ready to go and, and say, there are people who are threatening the gospel around this issue of law-keeping and circumcision and all this kind of stuff. So he's willing to point out when there's major theological problems that are happening. He doesn't even name the conflict here. But it's clear kind of linguistically throughout the letter that this, this situation with these two leaders in the church has been at the front of his mind throughout. And again, we don't, know what, we don't know what this issue is. I mean, maybe it was about strategy. How are we going to, you know, maybe there's two different opinions on how do we continue to help grow this little church community in Philippi. It could have been about finances. How are we going to use these resources that God has given to us as a church to, to serve those in need? I mean, I don't know. Maybe they were disagreeing about masks. Too soon? Sorry. Um, we have no idea, right? Paul doesn't give us the insight there. But we know they helped to plant this church. He calls them co-laborers, Yodia and Syntyche. He says, these are my co-laborers in the gospel. These are, these are leaders. These are people I, who we, we have started this church community together. They're people of influence. But they are people with differing opinions about something. And again, Paul is concerned about this enough that he's writing to them, but he's not surprised. He's not surprised. And that's the big takeaway from this point here, is that we shouldn't be surprised by disagreement. Paul isn't. He's not surprised there's disagreement happening because the gospel brings together people who disagree. And if you're a part of a local church and you've never experienced disagreement, either you haven't really been that a part of it. You're not deeply enough a part of that community that you actually know people well enough to disagree. Maybe you just kind of pop in on Sunday mornings and then pop out and, and you don't really know someone that well. Or you have disagreed with people, you just have never told them about it. You just kind of kept it, kept it in, kind of papered it over. Um, you know, that's, that tends to be my mode. I, I'd rather sort of just kind of go along to get along, not, not stir the pot to avoid the discomfort of disagreement. But when we do that, when we're not connected enough to a community to have disagreements, or when we kind of just ignore the disagreements that actually do exist, we, we rob the gospel of an opportunity to show the power that it has to bring about unity and connection, even in the midst of disagreement. Our gospel movement brings together people who are going to disagree. We should not be intimidated by that. We shouldn't be angry by it. We shouldn't be surprised by it or disappointed by it. It's part of what God is doing to help us to become more conformed to his image, to help us to become more sacrificial in our love for one another. But not only does the gospel bring together people who disagree, our gospel also equips people for those disagreements. The gospel equips people to disagree. Because Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's masterful here in these three short verses. He's modeling, he's giving us an example uh, to follow. Just, you know, we looked at last week, how do we, we proceed in this race? And part of this, Paul says, follow my example. He's giving us an example right here for us to follow of how to deal with conflict, how to deal with disagreement in the church community. But it's just a couple of sentences. It happens so fast. It's sort of like watching uh, a 5-4-3 triple play in baseball, right? It's this, they're really rare. 
and it happens so fast, you've just got to watch the replay in slow motion to see what happens at each bag, with each, with each throw, with each tag. I'm so glad baseball's back, you guys. That's, that's really the main point of that. I just want to talk about baseball. I'm so glad it's back. But you, you see a play like that in baseball, and it's like you've got to slow it down to watch all the nuances of what happens in a quick play like that. So what I want to do is it's going to read this passage again for us. That's kind of watching the play at normal speed. And then I want to sort of slow it down for us and look at each frame of what Paul is doing here and show you just how amazing what Paul has done here and his emotional intelligence. So I want to read this again. This is actually the Christian Standard Bible translation. He says, so then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends, I urge Yodia and Syntyche to, er, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So again, this is a really short little passage, but Paul is doing some really amazing things here. So let's break this down. I want to take it by moment by moment just to show you how thoughtful, humble, Emotionally intelligent Paul's being here. First, he, he names these women to de-escalate the situation and to honor them. Paul rarely ever names his enemies. He's way harsher on them, and he almost never mentions them by name. He, he names these women to give them honor, to show them respect. There's enough trust and health here for him to be direct. They're his dearly beloved brothers and sisters at this church. There's his joy and his crown at this church. There's this foundation of trust and love and affection. Um, he lays that foundation in verse 1. In fact, the Greek word order puts dearly beloved, this beloved language, right next to Yodia in verse 2. And this is so important in addressing disagreements. We have to start from a place of affection and love for the other person who is involved. And second here, notice that he repeats the command urge to each party, right? Because Paul could have just said, I urge Yodia and Syntyche. He doesn't have to say, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. In fact, a good style editor would probably say, Paul, you can drop one of those verbs. You don't need to say it twice. You can just say it once. But notice what he's doing. Paul doesn't pick sides. He says, I urge both of them. He uses the verb both times with them. He's putting them on equal ground. He addresses them both equally. Whatever's going on, he doesn't need to weigh in other than to say, agree in the Lord, which hold on that thought. We'll unpack more of what that means later. And then, then third, this, this next frame in this play-by-play, -play, he, he empowers a local leader who he calls this, this true companion, this true friend, to help these two women agree, to, to process together. And we don't know who that true companion is, but again, the language Paul uses is so intentional. He uses the language of urge with Yodia and Syntyche. I urge you, which just has a little more force, a little more kind of authority behind it, but then he uses the word of, he uses the language of asking with the true companion. So he's actually, it's a little bit more deferential. I ask this true companion to help them in this. So he's setting up this local leader who's on the ground there to help mediate this disagreement, this conflict. He's empowering them. Now, we don't know who that true companion was. Some have suggested maybe it's Lydia. Maybe that, we know that she was a big part of this early uh, church community. The, the church probably met in her home. So maybe it's Lydia as the true companion. Maybe it's Luke. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel, or the, the Book of Acts. Some have suggested maybe this is Luke who's there, or Silas who was also with Paul in the planting of the church at Philippi. But we don't 
we don't know. I mean, there's, there's no way for us to know who this person is. But the point is, is that Paul sets up this local leader, this trusted person who can help mediate this disagreement. Again, this, this, this passage, these couple sentences, is just a masterclass in emotional intelligence, how Paul navigates, what he does say, and probably more importantly, what he doesn't say here. So how, the question then for me is, how does Paul, who in the early part of his life is actively trying to de- violently destroy the church, become a person of such emotional humility and, and emotional intelligence and nuance and, and care and tenderness. How does that happen? And, and, and the, the answer is the gospel. His encounter with Jesus transformed him and is producing this Christ-like fruit of the Spirit in his life as he walks with Jesus. And again, don't forget by the world standards, by today's standards, Paul, he's still a religious zealot. He is fanatical about his beliefs, but he, he hasn't gotten any sort of softer on his core convictions about the world and the truth. He's just changed what he's fanatical about. He's now fanatical about the gospel. And that's what we need to be a community that is fanatical about the gospel more than about anything else. To get fanatical about the gospel. That's the key to disagreeing well in the believing community within the local church is not to suppress what we think or feel or not to have opinions, but that we become fanatics about the gospel more than anything else. I saw this quote on Twitter from Tim Keller last week, and he explains this better than I am. He says this. He says, think of fanatical people. They're, they're overbearing, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they're not Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous, but they are not fanatically humble, sensitive, empathetic, forgiving as Christ was. When you find people who are fanatic about particular issues in culture, it's not that they're, they're too Christian. The, the, the answer is not that, well, they need to be less Christian. They need to be less fanatical. No, they, they, they're not Christian enough. They actually need to go deeper into the gospel. So they become humble and sensitive and empathetic and forgiving. All right, so in the midst of our disagreements as believers, which is what's going on here, in the midst of those things, if we're known more for our strong opinions than for our strong character, if we're known more for our opinions about Christ rather than our Christ-likeness, then we might be fanatical about the wrong things. As Christians, this is what we ought to be known for, our character, our treatment of one another, even when, especially when, when we disagree about secondary issues. And again, it, it's clear that the disagreement between Yodia and Syntyche here is not a gospel issue. They are not disagreeing over Jesus or grace or the meaning of the cross or, or law-keeping for salvation uh, or any of that, those core issues, none of that. We don't know what it was, but it's clear that this is not, not a core issue. It was a secondary one. And so, and so let's just bring this home for our, our church family. If we are disagreeing at a level that is causing division on non-essential issues within our church family, or we're, we're being caustic or personal or hurtful in, in our rhetoric against people with whom we disagree, we're, we're probably fanatical about the wrong things. Our opinion about something should not be more prominent than our imitation of Jesus. And again, I just want to encourage those of you who are here today, this morning. Again, this year has not been easy, right? But you're here. You are still here with us. And again, we went around this room. I know over the last year, we have not all disagreed. Or we, have, we, we have not all agreed, I should say. We have not all agreed on a whole host of things, right? 
pandemic stuff, reopening, masks, vaccines, all of that, not to mention politics and how to confront justice and, and what the core problems are, all that. There have been all kinds of disagreements about that, but we have stayed together. You have not left. You are still here. And you are stronger. We are stronger as a community because we've practiced giving up preferences at times. We're stronger for having stuck it out with one another in love rather than leaving. So I just want to encourage you this morning for being that kind of church family. And our challenge isn't over. Like we need to continue to deepen in our fanaticism, if you will, about the gospel so that we continue to be the kinds of people who have Christ-like character forged in us for the disagreements that will come in the future, the ones that are still very much alive today. Because there are lots of divisive issues in the broader culture world that, that, that tend to creep into our church family here. And it's why we gather each Sunday. It's why we do things like say the Apostles' Creed or sing together. Why we, later on, we're going to celebrate communion together to remind us of who and what unites us that is bigger than what we disagree on. That is stronger than what we disagree on. And that's our last observation here this morning is that our gospel is big enough to disagree. Whatever the issue, whatever the conflict, notice what Paul doesn't do here. He doesn't say, now, Yodia, Sintiki, you need to, one of you needs to go to a different church. Uh, he doesn't say, uh, you guys just need to get in a different small group, different community group, and avoid one another. Uh, he also doesn't say, well, I think we just, this is the time we're going to just have a, ch- a church uh, split. We'll just start a new church with this other group that disagrees. Uh, he also doesn't ignore it, right? He's clearly addressing it. Um, he, he also says that, you know, he doesn't say it doesn't matter. You know, it, it matters. But he also doesn't step in and assert his authority and say, well, here's the right answer. Here's what you should do. Paul doesn't pick sides. If he has an opinion on this issue that Yodia and Syntyche are wrestling with, he doesn't share it. I mean, in fact, I find it hard to believe that Paul doesn't have an opinion. I mean, Paul is very thoughtful. He has strong opinions on lots of things. But here, he says, this is a local issue for this church to work out. He's not going to step in except to say a simple command, and that is to agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. That little phrase, agree, that word agree, is actually translated, it's the same exact phrase, word, that's translated in chapter 2 as have the same mind. Have the same mind about Jesus. And Paul is just applying specifically to this conflict what he has prescribed generally for the whole church in Philippi, which is to have the same mind in Christ. To agree in the Lord. To have the same mind about the gospel essentials. Now, this doesn't solve the specific problem. Just saying, agree in the Lord, that doesn't make the issue that they're dealing with go away. But what it does is it puts it in context. It frames it in the broader context of gospel essentials. Paul is hinting here that yes, we can and we will disagree about all kinds of things, but we agree in the Lord. And as long as that is true, because when we disagree about the Lord, that's a, that's a different issue. But as long as we agree in the Lord, we will be okay. Uh, We may not be the best of friends. We may not always vote the same way on on issues or candidates. We may not always agree on what's the right way to do a particular program in the church. We might not always agree, but if we agree in the Lord, then we, while we might not be best friends, we can be brothers and sisters in the same church family. That's Paul's point. And again, Paul isn't saying that the problem they're dealing with doesn't matter. Rather, he's just saying it is nothing compared with the gospel. 
Because think about it like a car, right? The, the, the issue that they're dealing with here, it's on the level of needing to replace the wiper blades in the car. That's a task I find annoying because you, you don't think about it until you're in a rainstorm and then it stops and then you forget about it. And you know, it's just one of those little things. You have to do it. It's important to replace the wiper blades. But you're, you're not going to get rid of the car over wiper blades. But if you're dealing with a transmission issue, I mean, that could be a point where the cost gets so high that you think, right, well, we've we got to get a different car. We can't afford to fix this thing. Right? <laughs> Raise with me. Um, yeah. You know, but th- what Paul is saying here is don't take a wiper blade level issue and make it into a transmission issue. Right? Like, <laughs> don't, don't do that. Don't make that issue. You see, you're dealing with a wiper blade issue. So just keep it in the context of the gospel. And then you can work on agreeing on which blade of wipers you should buy for the car. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, so, so are you saying, Bill, there's never a legitimate reason to leave a church? <laughs> that you can never disagree with the, with the church's position or on something? No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But Paul's focus in this passage is, is not on how do you wrestle when you should consider leaving, but on how do you disagree or how do you kind of stay together when there's disagreement. We could look at places in Acts where Paul actually does part ways with Barnabas over a conflict over a guy named John Mark, and, and we could go there and we could do a whole message on, on how do you think through, when do you need to part ways for a season and all of that, and, and whether even what Paul and Barnabas do there is right. You know, we're just getting that described, and, and should they have done that a different way? We could do a whole sermon on that, but what Paul's point here in this passage is how do you agree together? It's, that's Paul's point, and so that's, that's my point this morning. This isn't a sermon about how do you decide when to leave, but how do you, how do you stay together? Because that's what Paul is encouraging Yodia and Syntyche to do. How do you agree in the Lord when you disagree about other things? Back, Paul, Paul here, he ends with the same strategy. He points out that everyone involved, Yodia, Syntyche, this local leader, this some, this some guy named Clement. We don't know why Clement gets mentioned here. He gets a shout out. And everybody in this church, all their names, everybody in this list here, in this church community, their names, Paul says, are in the book of life. That's verse three. And the book of life is a reference to eternity. It's why that language is all over the book of Revelation, which is the final book of the Bible, which is all about our destiny, our our eternal destiny as as followers of Jesus. And Paul says, everybody in this church community will be raised to new life in Jesus and will be in perfect harmony together in new creation. They are in the book of life. So we must remember that in our conflicts, our disagreements, that we will be together forever. And forever is a really long time. So let's figure it out today. We have faced and are facing a lot of disagreement. And we're going to continue to face disagreement in the future. But we have to learn to agree in the Lord because we are going to share life together in the new heavens and new earth forever. And our community now, the local church now, is supposed to be a foretaste of what that will be like. And so when we agree in the Lord, when we are willing to be wrong, when we're willing to give up our preferences we reenact for one another in a small way what Jesus has done for every one of us in an ultimate way, right? Because Jesus on the cross takes the ultimate posture of reconciliation, the ultimate position of giving up his desires, his wants, his preferences, his comforts, his very life for those he loves. And this is the core of our faith, Jesus dying on a cross to love his enemies, to love us. And that reality ought to shape every disagreement that we have and how we approach it. 
which is why Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, ties conflict management, kind of this, almost he has a little manifesto on, on dealing with conflict in Colossians, directly to the forgiveness of sins. So as we close this morning, I just want to read these verses from Colossians over us as a prayer this morning. So I invite you to just pray with me. Hear these words from Colossians. Wash over you as we, as we close now. This is Paul's words in Colossians. So since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive everyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ, which com- and the peace that comes from Christ, rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Lord Jesus, I pray that these words of Paul would be true of us at Christ Community. Be true here of the Brookside campus, would be true of, of our congregations across the city, would be true of the church across the city. Lord, there have been so many churches, Lord, that we've, you know, we've lost people at Christ Community. Other churches have lost it, where people are here looking for new churches, and they've been for another church. Would you bring unity? Would you bring healing where there's been disagreement? Would we find new life, new hope in Jesus for his glory? and for the beauty of the gospel. Amen.